You're listening to the Converging Paths podcast, brought to you by Asia House and the Barakat Trust, with the support of the Al Tajir Trust and the Aga Khan Trust for Culture. Hello, everybody. This is your host, Juan de Lara. I'm the cultural manager at Asia House. Um, we're very happy to be back with you in 2021. We are very glad to announce the continuation of our Converging Path series. And we have a new format for our podcast. They are going to fall within the series and we have much more content, which includes webinars, interviews, which you will be able to find in our website. Today, to launch the series, we have here with us Baheya Shehab. She's a professor of practice of design at the American University in Cairo, where she has developed a full design curriculum, mainly focused on the visual culture of the Arab world. Her artwork has been on display internationally and has received several recognitions and awards, particularly her street artwork during the Egyptian uprising. And I think a few days ago, it was the anniversary of, of such event. Today, we have here with us Saif Rashidi, who will have this digital conversation with Bahia. So welcome, both of you. Thank you, Juan. And hi, Bahia. We're really excited to have you here. First episode of our 2021 series. And we're very excited to hear all about what you've been doing. But before you tell us about yourself, also please tell us about the Arab Spring, what it was, what happened, where and why it's important. Well, the Arab Spring is a term that has been... Uh, <laughs> the People disagree on it, whether it's a spring or not, but uh, I, we leave that to history to decide. But to me, it was a life-changing experience. It completely changed my life. And 10 years ago, when the revolution started in Cairo, I was simply an academic and interested in history. And then nine months into the revolution, I found myself spraying messages on the street. And to me, I'm a mother of two children. And that was something that I would have never imagined doing in my life to be actively participating in a revolution. So from a personal perspective, it changed my life completely. But in the region, I think we still have to wait and see. I don't think the full extent of what happened 10 years ago has unfolded. We are yet to see the results of, of, that, of those events that took place 10 years ago. Well, for the benefit of someone that might be 20 today and doesn't know anything about what happened, can you just summarize in a few sentences what are the events that you're talking about? Thank you for this question, because actually some of my students walk into my classrooms now and they have no idea of what happened to us. So what you're proposing is not unlikely scenario. So what happened 10 years ago is that the people went down to the street, they demonstrated in large numbers, and the president at the time stepped down, and there was a transition of power over two years. We had what we thought were elections and a member of the Muslim Brotherhood was elected as president and then a year later uh, that was reversed by the military and the current president of Egypt who is Abdel Fattah al-Sisi became president a year after uh, the Muslim Brotherhood took over the country so we had an exchange of power within three years. And how was this related to other things going on in the Middle East. You're talking about Egypt, but it's not an isolated event, right? Exactly. So it started in Tunisia on the 14th of January when 
Ben Ali stepped down. So the first, uh, what we call long-term rulers of the region, also due to people demonstrations and demands by the people in Tunisia for him to step down, he stepped down. And then a few weeks later, the same thing happened in Egypt. And this is why we call it a spring, because we thought that all of these countries, and then revolutions started erupting in Syria, also at the same time. Unfortunately, the scenario was not as we would have liked it to be. A lot of suffering, a lot of destruction, a lot of people have been displaced. The livelihoods of millions of people have changed in Syria. And I think the region has looked at Syria as the scenario that nobody wants. So whenever anybody wants to scare people out of a revolution, they would say, you don't want us to become another Syria. But then you look at Sudan and what happened in Sudan. And what was beautiful in the past two, three years is that we realized that the learning of what unfolded in Egypt was used in as learning for people in Sudan and people in Lebanon who were revolting now. So the tools were being exchanged by activists on the ground, on social media. Um, and I could see parallels and I could see patterns in these revolutions. The end result is not always the same, but, but what I'm finding uh, very intriguing is this collective mind that is being formed because of social media. What borders and dictators created has been maybe now less thanks to social media. We are more connected. How will that ever translate on the ground? I don't know if this will happen, but we can only look at what's going on in Tunisia and be very optimistic because women's rights movements have done brilliantly now they have so so many gains since the revolution started but we can't really compare countries because tunisia is much smaller in size and in population than to a country like egypt where we have a hundred million people living in the country so lebanon is much smaller than sudan so syria also so the number of the population also matters in the equation so when the change will happen, how will it happen? We're not certain, but change is happening. And if you could summarize the kind of change that's happening, what were these movements striving for and what kind of changes did some of them manage to bring about? So if we go back to the case of Tunisia for, for the women there, for example, as a Lebanese woman, I have no right to give the passport to my children. In Egypt, because we have a wonderful women's rights movement that has been active for decades now, this right, women have, have had it for 10 years in Egypt. In Tunisia, women have now equal inheritance rights. And this is really important. Because most of the countries follow Islamic law, women get half the inheritance that men get. And Tunisia managed to change that. So they're, they're very small steps. and. If we look at them, they take decades to, to take place, uh, but they are happening, mainly in terms of human rights and civil rights. Okay. Thank you. That was a very succinct and interesting summary. It would probably be fair to describe you as an artist, as an activist, and as an educator. And I was wondering what you feel the role of art was in the Arab Spring. The role of art was multifaceted actually because on one hand we were translating emotions so what we saw and what we comprehended what we digested it's like a caricature 
when when somebody's commenting on a political event. So artists were taking this to the street, translating all of these events, simplifying their messages for a mass audience. So when the constitution came out, why should you vote no or why should you vote yes? Memes were circulating, artists went down to the street to paint, songs were written. So art was being used as a tool for social change not only translating the events, but also making them accessible to a wider audience. And was this something unusual? Was it something that sprung out of nowhere, or is it something, in a way, to be expected? I think it's to be expected everywhere around the world. We've seen this happen everywhere, in, in Hong Kong, in Gezi Park, in Occup- the Occupy movement in the States, in Latin America, so uh, in Spain. So we've seen... Uh, art being uh, used as, a, for example, you had these flamenco dancers walking into a bank and performing a dance just to protest what was happening in, with the economic crisis in Spain. And we are seeing these examples live. It's not like we hear about them uh, a few or, and at the eight o'clock news. No, we are seeing them live in videos and th- these are being shared on social media. So the learning curve became higher and faster. And we were inspired by others. So when you see a 20-year-old woman in Uganda being elected to, to be, to be a, rep- a representative in the parliament, or when you see a woman in Spain lead, leading big ministries that were exclusively for men before, when you see in New Zealand and their new prime minister who's leading the country out of a pandemic and doing so successfully, when you see Angela Merkel. So I think the examples now around us not only in the Arab world, but all over the world, uh, people are being inspired faster. Well, tell us a bit about the art that took place in Egypt during the Arab Spring. What kind of art are we talking about? Everything you can imagine happened. (laughs) It was like a carnival because people were writing songs, singing them in the square. These were recorded, uploaded on YouTube. They were being shared online. And to me, I was listening to these songs and crying or feeling the need, the urge now to, to go down. So all of these sounds, there was like a cross-pollination across different mediums of the art. So you had music, uh, plays where, where people were performing, films were being shot, video clips were being shot in the square, graffiti artists were painting, poets were writing poems. And, and so it was so rich and diverse and it's indescribable, the emotions. It was so intense. And what kind of art did you get involved in? I'm a street artist, so I am specialized in tagging. So because, And I was really jealous from the male artists because I, I would see them stand on the street for hours painting these large-scale murals. And to me, as a woman, I didn't have that, that kind of access to the street for different reasons. But I had stencils, and I had a spray can, and I could run. So I used to spray paint. Did you just wake up one day and decide I'm going to go and spray paint in the street? Or how did it come about that you as an artist decided to participate in this movement? So when the revolution started in January, I was documenting uh, what was unfolding because it was obvious that it's uh, historic. So 
Nine months into the revolution, there was this video that was circulating of people who were shot and they were being piled like garbage on the street. And to me, that video was a, a, a breaking point. This is when I decided I don't want to be a bystander anymore and I don't want to be a historian. Uh, I, I can also be an artist and maybe right now it's more useful to be an artist and I can document later. It was in November of uh, 2011. And the wind of opportunity created by the Arab Spring to create street art and, to, and for art to have a very public presence, what's the legacy of that? How has it changed or shaped the perception of art and artists in the Arab world since then? I think just the idea that art accessible to the people is a very important one. And I think this is what we have established, the need for art in public spaces. All of the examples we've had before were uh, controlled by governments. So if there's a mural or a statue in a square, this was commissioned and executed by a governmental entity. And during the revolution, all this was gone and you had thousands of people on the street and hundreds of artists who were painting. The beauty of it was the variety of uh, techniques. So you had these really professional muralists uh, who were painting large scale and you had the young artists who could tag. So the variety of technique was beautiful to witness because they reflected the personalities of these artists. And all that was not curated. So nobody, there was no head curator or a governmental entity commissioning something. It was all grassroots. So during the revolution, I think art became accessible to everyone. Is that something that has continued or was it a moment that flowered and disappeared? Yeah, it was a season. It's, it's no longer the case. The walls are back, uh, are whitewashed. Um, and the spaces for expression have disappeared since 2013. So do you think that it's an art that necessarily comes out of a moment or moments of change and turmoil? Can they exist in a more stable environment or is, it, or is this the art of instability in a way? It is, it is the art of instability. It's, it's an art of expression and you, it's a translation of a strong emotional state. And you see that as a reaction. And partially talking about yourself, but also other people, what was the personal impact of this moment on you and other artists who were very moved by what was happening and chose to express and share political and emotional views through art? So there's a spectrum. Some of the street artists have left the country completely. Some of them are in jail. And a few lucky ones are still in the country. So, so the destinies of these artists uh, varied extremely. Um, to me, it was a learning experience. It was a great learning experience because I got to meet so many wonderful people in the event. And thinking more recently about Lebanon, which is where you're originally from, has political turmoil in Lebanon in recent years, do we find the same opportunity or the same moment of artists being very important in terms of expressing what people are feeling through art? Yes, I saw the pattern. It was the same at a different scale, of course, because 
You can't really compare 4 million people to 100 million. But of course, there was, there was a similar... Artists in Lebanon also pre- played an important role during the revolution in the same way that I saw in Egypt. And even today, in, the, in the, what's been happening in the past few years, economic woes and fears over the economy? Yes, because again, artists translate uh, emotions. And this is what they have been doing also in Lebanon. And in the art of the Arab Spring, do you see commonalities between the, the artworks produced by different people in different media, for example, graffiti and tagging and all of that? I mean, if you were to describe it as a body of, or a collective response, is there a way that one could say, this is what it has in common? I think, yes, of course, speed is crucial because you don't have a lot of time on the street. So if we're talking specifically, but then speed in everything, because when somebody writes a song in the square and they perform it in the square about how we are feeling and this is shared. So I think time is the main a common aspect but in, in revolutions because time is of essence. And if you are, in a way, if you are ready, I always say that the revolutions are like magnifying lenses. There are always citizens who are concerned and artists who have a message. And then the revolution comes, it, it's like a magnifier, it amplifies their voice. And then they go back, they're still concerned. They still have the same ideas, but the revolution was a moment where their voices were heard more or shared more. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a fascinating way of, of thinking about it as a magnifying glass. And so, Turning a bit to you, what, have the, what has the experience of 10 years ago, what kind of impact has it had on you, your work, and how you've learned from it and been directed by it? To me, it, as I said, it's been a great learning journey. Well, t- tell me about also your work as an educator. I mean, does that stem from what you saw in the Arab Spring? Definitely, it was, it was inspired uh, by what was unfolding. It, it was a very emotional time. It's like when you are in the middle of the hurricane, you're not really thinking about anything else except how to manage all of these emotions. Uh, To me, it was life-changing. It completely changed my life and and my outlook on things. But but the most precious thing is that I met like-minded people, people who believe before the revolution, I used to always feel that maybe there's no place for my ideas. And then when the revolution unfolded, I started finding all of these people who care about the same things as I do. And this is the real treasure, is the the islands of light that have been connected because of the revolution. What are those ideas that you and others care about? And how have you spent your time trying to make them into reality? You would think these are ideas that are common sense for some reason. Human dignity, freedom the right to express things that we consider basic until today we have to navigate or explain something that to us seems common like common sense so i think revolutions come as a chance for a society to dust itself and it's the role of those who believe in change to act up for me it has been Every problem I look at, I see that the solution is education. 
whatever we do, if the society you're in is not educated to a certain moral compass, and the problem is that without an educated society, we can't advance, we can't go anywhere. And this is why I invested my time in education and I invested my time in creating a new graphic design program at the American University in Cairo. Uh, to me, design is about problem solving. If, you, if we can't create enough minds who think creatively and can solve problems, they'll be able to, sell, to solve any problem, design or not. And you put them out in the world and you can only hope that they will be the, agent, the agents of change. Because one person cannot change the world. You need, you need the whole world to change the world. So is one of the underlying aims or visions of the graphic design program at the American University to create the space to educate creative people? Definitely. This is the from day one, 10 years ago, this was the aim. And this is why we wrote, we just recently published a book on the history of Arab graphic design, because there is no book on the history of Arab graphic design. I grew up learning the Western canon and believing that maybe design in my part of the world doesn't even exist. But what I discovered is that it, it's there. It's just not been documented. So I think what we need to create now is memory, because this is what we are lacking. Because of revolutions, wars, invasions, there has been a mass migration of minds out of the Arab world. And the, this continuity of knowledge has been broken over and over and over again. With what we have, my question is, how can we build a chain and connect our past with our future? And I think archives and books right now is what I have access to. And this is where I think we all need to be investing our time in, is to create this link. What do you think the value of archived memory and memories is? It's everything. It's our existence. It's our continuity. How can you learn if you don't know your past? Because when we lost touch with our vernacular I can see the cuts in our history, the Islamic houses that we used to build, that understand nature, that understand the environment we are in, that are designed for the comfort of the human being living in them. And I saw the break away from that. To me, it was heartbreaking. We lost so much knowledge in, in how we live every day, in how we dress, what we eat. We've been disconnected from our locality, brutally so. So... Memory is everything. And talking about memory and your recent project, you've just published a book which recalls, it's a memoir of your experience of the Arab Spring. Can you tell us a bit about it? What's the book about what, and what's its aim? I have to confess that this is the second memoir because the first one was, this is a prequel to the, at the corner of a dream because after the revolution, it was such a shock, I left. Not I, I, live, I still live in Cairo. I've been living in Cairo for uh, 15 years now. But after the revolution, I felt like if Cairo is not going to be my city, then the whole world will be my city and I will paint in any city that allows me. So I started painting the No Project that started in Cairo, but in different cities around the world. And I came to a point where I felt that I can't keep saying no. No, I will keep saying no for the rest of my life. But I need to get to a place where I need to resolve this collective trauma that we've all lived through. And poetry always comes to my aid. And I started reading Mahmoud Darwish, everything by Mahmoud Darwish, because 
what happened with the Palestinian people, they are ahead of us in being displaced and dealing with the trauma. And for example, the Palestinian Poster Archive is a, is a brilliant resource that collects the memory of the struggle of the Palestinian people. So Mahmoud Darwish summarized all that. And I started painting poetry by Mahmoud Darwish in different cities around the world. And I published a book. And in that book was me coming to terms with the loss, with the fact that I cannot change things now. Maybe I will never live to see the change. But what about the second book? What's the reason for this one? So the, the, the reason for the second book is now that the trauma was dealt with, I needed to document the story and the memory. And I felt that working for three years on the streets of Cairo deserved to be documented and shared with the coming generations. Just so that historically, the historian in me now is keen on telling the story. I just want to make sure that the story is passed on. And is it a book based on memories solely or is it also based on things you recorded or documented over the past 10 years or perhaps 10 years ago? It's a history from below, so it's a personal narrative. So I take the reader through every day of the revolution. So the day to day, the intimate, the intangible things that nobody talks about, like waking up at three in the morning, making sure my daughters are sleeping and then going down to spray on the street. And why? Why am I doing that? Because it's uh, looking at myself back, I think I'm crazy. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense for a mother to go down and spray paint. It's just illogical. And I wanted to understand why. What drove me to put your life at risk, risk of being raped, uh, getting killed. It's it doesn't make sense. And to me, the memoir helps me understand why. I found the title really interesting. You can crush the flowers. Where does that title come from? It's actually a poem by Pablo Neruda. And if you know the poem, you'd know that the rest of, of it is you can crush the flowers, but you cannot delay spring. Oh, a lovely, a very nice line. So the, the poem was painted for a young man who used to study at uh, AUC and he was killed. Uh, his name is Omar Mohsin, and he was graduating that spring. So uh, that poem, I found it in a uh, field hospital in Tahrir, and it was written in Arabic. And I was fascinated to find Neruda written on a piece of paper in a field hospital in Tahrir. Uh, and to me, that poem translated how I was feeling at the moment and the death of that student. So um, this is where the title comes from. And now that your book is completed, or your second book, how do you see the future learning from all of the things you've done in the past 10 years? I mean, what are you working on and what are you focusing on for the, few, the next 10 years, say? I think my students are the next 10 years. It's comforting to know that I can pass the knowledge on, that now the memory is not limited to my person. If I die, the story will be told. And I'm grateful for all the people who have been creating archives about the revolution, like the 858 archive, which is a brilliant, brilliant resource for anybody who wants to understand or study the Egyptian revolution. So there have been efforts to archive, document and write. There are many authors who are writing. Unfortunately, many of them are also outside of the country, but at least they are leaving traces for 
for the next generation if they want to learn from the experience, the knowledge is preserved. So the next 10 years, I think, I hope, the people who come in touch with our ideas can learn from them. If there's anything to be optimistic about, is that it? Or are there other things apart from learning from the experience of the past? The learnings are many. The fact that we learned is enough. I mean, because everybody's uh, looking at the past decade and portraying it as a failure. But I don't see failure if there's learning. There's no failure if you're learning. So the learning is the biggest outcome for all of us. And if you could summarize, hard as it may be, what have Egyptians or Arabs learned from the Arab Spring? Are there certain things that strike you more than anything else? I'm sure, I'm sure there's somebody studying this in detail and can inform you better than I can, but we know that anybody walking on the street with a phone and a camera can record injustice. So I suppose one of the things that we've observed is people being more involved and more invested in voicing what they think is right and what they think should change. And I guess that's something that wasn't the case before, that people were more apathetic. And I think this disappearance of apathy in itself is a huge step forward. I, I agree. I fully agree. Yes. So a bit more empathy now. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you, Bahia. That was really fascinating. And I'm sure our listeners would love to get a copy of You Can Crush the Flowers, a memoir of the Egyptian Revolution and delve into a personal, a second personal memoir of what it meant to be there and perhaps learn from it too. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You were listening to the Converging Paths podcast.